Today on Blue 58, the Packers roster was up to 88 players, then 90, then 89, now 90 again. Let's get caught up on the many moves of Brian Gutekunst. Then after an offseason of change, who's facing the most pressure in Green Bay? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for what I think is going to be a great episode. As we talked about last week, the Packers roster was in a little bit of a state of flux, even though we had some pretty reliable reporting on who is going to end up being their undrafted free agent signings. The Packers have continued to make some moves, adjusting their final group to get to the 90 people we have on the roster today. So let's take a second and get caught up on the four moves the Packers have made since we've last spoken, starting with signing cornerback Nidera Rouse out of Westchester University in Pennsylvania. Rouse is going to take the spot of Nate Brooks, who signed with the Cardinals instead of the Packers. We talked about him last week during our undrafted free agent roundup. It sounds like he just went in a different direction. These signings are not always as firm as they may appear from the outside. Rouse is a bit of an odd duck here. He's got an unusual story from college. He played his first three years at corner before moving to linebacker as a senior, and he didn't play a ton in his final year in college. That is a move you almost never see. Cornerback to safety? Sure. Safety to linebacker? Totally. Corner to linebacker? Not so much. But it makes me think that maybe that hybrid linebacker position that we're seeing now in the NFL a lot is maybe the missing link between cornerbacks and linebackers. Maybe investigate that? Who knows? Rouse, anyway, ran a in the 4-4 range at his pro day. Not bad. And he has a bit of a harrowing story in his background, too. Website DraftDiamonds.com, which you should add to your pre-draft reading, has some great coverage of maybe underreported guys in the draft. Uh, has a Q&A with Mr. Rouse, and he offers this little nugget. The, the author of the piece asks, Tell me about your biggest adversity in life and how you've dealt with or overcome it. Here's what Rouse had to say. On May 14th, 2016, I was shot in the head in North Philadelphia. I overcame it by having the mindset that I'm fortunate to be alive and still being able to play this sport of football. I went on and had the best season of my career and made zero excuses. First, that's pretty incredible. And it takes, or it took me a second to realize that the story had a positive ending because he was telling it at all. But it's just incredible that you overcome that at all, being shot in the head to any extent. I don't care if it's a grazing shot, whatever. And continuing to want to go outside at all in the future is pretty amazing. But I would just like to go on record and say that as far as I'm concerned, if you are ever shot in the head, you can make as many excuses for your performance throughout the remainder of your life as you would like. He said that he made zero excuses for his performance. That's fine. But if you would like to make many excuses about how he performed as a player or anything after he was and I can't emphasize this enough, shot in the head, that would be fine. I think we would all understand that. So, if he doesn't make it out of training camp, if he doesn't make it as a football player, it will be sad for him, sure. But it will not, by a long shot, be the worst thing that has ever happened to Nidare Rouse if he ends up cut at the end of training camp. Moving right along, Chandon Sullivan, another cornerback, joins the Packers, not directly out of Georgia State, though he did play there in college. He comes to Green Bay via the Philadelphia Eagles. Sullivan was an undrafted free agent last year, but made the Eagles roster coming out of training camp. 
He's a pretty solid athlete. Think back to last week. He's very similar testing-wise to Kavion Ento. A little bit shorter, but a pretty well-built 194 pounds at 5'10", 5'11", or so. Good vertical leap numbers. Good broad jump numbers. And I like that he's a good athlete and has made a roster before. He played 87 snaps on defense for Philly last year, another 53 on special teams. He did not record a special teams tackle. I don't, who cares? Um, just just a little nugget there. Did not do a lot on defense. If you look at the pro football focus numbers, they think he was pretty good in the limited time he did play. Again, 87 snaps, who really cares? You're pretty much taking another flyer here on an athletic guy who has a little bit of a pedigree because he's done it in the pro game before. This young man was a finalist for the William V. Campbell Trophy in college. That is the quote-unquote academic Heisman Trophy. And not just a fake kind of football player degree either. He had held down a 3.84 college GPA as a journalism major, a real major. Look at him for doing that. Props on him for going into football, though. Pays much better than journalism. Moving right along, Darius Shepard joins the Packers as a wide receiver out of North Dakota. Very productive in college, but... You do have to wonder a little bit how much that had to do with the level of competition he was playing against. That is not an earth-shattering take. I think that's pretty fair and pretty expected given where he played. At 5'11", 188 pounds, he's not super big, but size doesn't worry me all that much. He's going to be playing a slot receiver, punt returner type role if he plays at all for the Packers. You don't need the biggest guys in the world to play that spot, and he's not all that much smaller than Randall Cobb either, and he did just fine. He did get a little bit banged up, but a lot of football players get banged up. I like that Shepard has a punt returning background. The Packers need a punt returner. I'm not sure it needs to be a defining characteristic for any player trying to make the roster, but it certainly can't hurt. Though, everybody talking about him online, mentioning his punt returning background, makes me remember when teams devoted roster spots just to return guys. If they could do anything else, that was just a bonus. Teams wanted these guys around just for what they could do as returners. So like late 90s, early 2000s, you saw this all the time. Here's just a few names from the Packers alone. Remember these guys? Darian Gordon, J.J. Moses, Roel Preston, Eric Metcalf, Alan Rossum, Antonio Chapman, each of those guys primarily a return specialist. Chapman, among all of those, probably did the most outside of the return game, but not a ton. He, he, he did have one fairly good season, but the Packers cycled through a lot of guys that were just return men. You don't see that at all anymore. Although if they were to do something like that, you'd probably look for a guy like Darius Shepard. Finally, Jawill Davis, another wide receiver, he comes to Green Bay from the Giants, and I can't really improve what on what Tex Western at Acme Packing Company wrote about him. Here's a couple paragraphs from him. Quote, at 6'1 and 191 pounds, Davis is fast. There's no question about that, according to DraftScout.com. His time in the 40-yard dash was 4.38 seconds, with an even more impressive time of 1.50 in the first 10 yards. He is also an explosive athlete, registering a 39.5-inch vertical and a solid 10-foot-3 broad jump. However, Davis's agility testing was truly awful for a player at his position and size. His short shuttle time is a reported 4.56 seconds with a three-cone time of 7.52 seconds. And here's the kicker. By contrast, Packers fifth-round pick Kingsley Kiki, Kiki, however you say that, still don't have that one down, had better times at the 2019 Combine in both of those drills as a six foot three, 288 pound defensive lineman. 
end quote. So not great there from an agility standpoint. This is another guy who's probably almost exclusively a special teamer, probably not looking at him for a ton of contributions as a wide receiver, but again, he's done a little bit of stuff in the NFL before. Always good to see. It can't hurt. And I think if anything, if there's any conclusion to take from the signings of Davis and of Shepard, it's that Trevor Davis does not have an assured roster spot. I think we all knew that, but signing guys who do the things that Trevor Davis does is probably not a great indication for Trevor Davis. Let's shift gears entirely and talk about pressure. I've been thinking about the idea of pressure a lot over the last couple days. Listener John in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, wrote in with a question that I'll kind of paraphrase here. He asked a, it was a very long question, so I'll kind of paraphrase his thoughts down. Basically, he asks that we've been seeing a lot about how there's pressure on Mike Pettin because he's gotten a whole lot of new resources this offseason, but I still think the bulk of the pressure is on Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers this year. What do you think? I think John is right, and I will tell you why. Here's how I will tell you. It's been too long since we really just flat out tortured a metaphor to death. So let's just do just that. Let's take a metaphor to describe how the Packers operate and really just run it straight into the ground here. I think it'll be fun. First, a question. What is pressure? You can think of it a bunch of different ways, but I think it basically comes down to scrutiny with consequences. People paying a lot of close, intense attention to what you're doing and reacting in meaningful ways to what you do. Some people in the Packers organization may get scrutiny, but aren't going to get a lot of consequences. Russ Ball comes to mind. He gets scrutinized a lot in the media, among fans, but what's going to happen to Russ Ball? Probably not a whole lot, because the Packers seem to be fans of what he's doing. In the Packers organization, I think there are five guys who face the most pressure, and for good reason. Those five guys are Mark Murphy, Brian Gutekunst, Matt LaFleur, Mike Pettin, and Aaron Rodgers. Of those five, I think two are facing real pressure this season, while the others are, well, not so much. Facing less pressure. Let's just say it that way. All of these guys are facing pressure. Some are facing more than others. On the less pressure side of that scale, we have Murphy, Gutekunst, and Pettin. On the more pressure side, we have Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers. Why is that? Well, let's turn to our metaphor. For reasons that I won't explain here, I have had a lot of free time lately. And in that free time, I have been listening to one of my favorite podcasters quite a bit. I'm a big fan of a guy named Dan Carlin. If you're into podcasts a lot, you have probably heard of him. He runs a couple of the most popular podcasts that have ever existed. Hardcore History, Common Sense, and now he has recently added Hardcore History Addendum. But I've been listening to a bunch of his stuff lately. Re-listening, in fact, because I like what he does so much. And as a result, I've been thinking about geopolitical things and the ramifications of the actions of great powers and stuff like that. If you're into Dan Carlin a lot, that will sound pretty familiar to you. Maybe because of this, I think that a good way to think about the Packers is by thinking about them like a country, like an empire, maybe. And these five guys represent parts of the government or even the country itself. Let's set up these roles starting at the very top. To me, Mark Murphy is like the king of whatever this fictional country is called. Let's call it Packertopia. Mark Murphy, the king of Packertopia. But he's a king in like a constitutional monarchy. 
He has power, but it's supposed to be largely ceremonial, at least over the football side of things. His role when it comes to football, by and large, is to advise and consent. He tells Brian Gutekunst, here's what I think he should do. Brian Gutekunst can do that or not do that. Whatever he chooses to do will be what actually happens for the Packers. Mark Murphy could overrule him if he wants, but most of the decisions should be up to Brian Gutekunst. Murphy is like a monarch, an emperor, whatever, that's really not supposed to get involved, but he can and he does when he thinks it's really important. To circle back to Dan Carlin, I've been listening to a podcast he did about World War II in the Pacific Theater recently. Mark Murphy, to really torture this analogy already, sounds sounds a little bit like the old school emperor of Japan. Think early 20th century. Technically not supposed to be involved in the government, but he can and does get involved. And when he does, there are big consequences, like we've seen over the last couple of years. Brian Gutekunst, in our land of Packerstopia, is like a prime minister, like the head of government. His job is to actually make the decisions that affect every other part of this fictional government and how they operate. So if you're the real prime minister, the president, whatever, you're putting in place the things that help other parts of your government do their job. And that's exactly what Brian Gutekunst does for the Packers. He gets the players. He, in a way, helps negotiate the contracts. He sets the financial priorities for the Packers. And he shapes the kind of identity that the Packers will have. We've seen that a lot over the last couple of years. He has deviated from some of the things that Ted Thompson has done. He has skewed a lot more towards athletes than Ted Thompson ever did. Though Ted Thompson did like his athletes, to be sure. Brian Gutekunst has gone all the way to that end of the spectrum. He doesn't draft the guys who are quote-unquote football players to the degree that Ted Thompson ever did. But in his role as the head of state for this fictional Packers company, Brian Gutekunst is affecting the jobs that everyone else does. Matt LaFleur has one of those jobs. In our fictional land of Packers-topia, Matt LaFleur might be our Secretary of State. He is probably the most important non-elected government position that we have. At least that's kind of how it is in the United States. Matt LaFleur, I think without a doubt, is the most important non-executive in the Packers organization. His job is to advance the team's agenda as decided by the general manager. That's what a head coach does. And that's usually how it works throughout the league. Although with the organizational structure in Green Bay being how it is right now, it's maybe not quite the way it's working, but it's close enough. Besides, I kind of like this analogy a lot. You might have guessed because I'm building a whole show around it and I want it to work. So we're going to stick with it. His job is to execute using the things that Brian Gutekunst has given him. And he sets the tone for the entire team being the head coach. Mike Pettin real quick is going to be obvious in the United States. If our fictional country of Packerstopia was like the United States, he would be the Secretary of Defense. That is too obvious, but it's really the thing that fits the best. Your Secretary of Defense is crucially important, but the success of your Defense Department depends on a lot of other factors, namely what resources he's given. It is hard for a Secretary of Defense or a defensive coordinator in an offensive-oriented team like the Packers, to enact change on their own. And I think that's true for Mike Pettin. There's only so much he can do. 
Last year, we saw a lot of improvement on defense, but there was only so much Mike Pettin could do with the pieces he was given because the pieces, in a lot of ways, weren't super great. Safety is a perfect example of that. The Packers had improved play all throughout their defense last year, but safety struggled a lot. And it may even have cost them a couple games. The Washington game in particular comes to mind. The Redskins moved up and down the field with a lot of deep passes, and a lot of it was because the safeties were real bad that particular afternoon, even though haha Clinton Dix had a real nice interception. There's only so much that your defensive coordinator or secretary of defense can do on his own. In a government, he needs budgets. In football, he needs players. And until right about now, Mike Pettin didn't have a lot of players. Now he does. Finally, to round out our big five players and their positions within our fictional land of Packers-topia, Aaron Rodgers is some kind of precious resource. I even thought of him as maybe like, I don't know, your nuclear triad, if you're really one of the great powers of the world. Your precious resource, whatever it is, is something that your country is going to depend on for everything. And the Packers depend on Aaron Rodgers, much as they may not like it, for just about everything. If your country is built around a specific resource, the decline in value or function of that resource could cripple your country. And that's how it would be with our country if Aaron Rodgers was that natural resource. Think about like an oil-rich company, or a country, excuse me, or something that invests all of their resources into the production and sale of that resource. Say, tomorrow they discover massive, massive quantities of oil somewhere in the United States. And we decide we are going to become the absolute no-competition oil leader of the, the world. And we devote all of our resources in this country to the mining, sale, and production of oil. But then, five years from now, suddenly there is a huge breakthrough in clean energy. Say we finally perfect nuclear fusion, and we don't need oil anymore. What happens to our country? We're going to be in serious trouble. What would happen if suddenly oil was 90% less valuable than it used to be? That would be a big problem if your economy was built around oil. Aaron Rodgers is that resource for the Packers. And we've seen the effects of him being less than he probably could be over the last couple of years. So how does this very tortured metaphor explain the pressure levels on the members of this big five in the Packers organization? Well, among the three guys with low pressure, I think all of them have excuses that kind of get them off the hook. Mark Murphy can say, I'm not technically involved in the day-to-day operations of this football team. Yeah, I mean, I'm more involved than I was in the past with Ted Thompson and Mike McCarthy, but I'm still leaving a lot of things up to Brian Gutekunst and Matt LaFleur. Besides, even if there was a lot of meaningful scrutiny on Mark Murphy, what kind of consequences could possibly come with that scrutiny? It would take a lot probably a scandal not related to football to unseat Mark Murphy, especially with the team still making crazy amounts of money. So probably no real consequences for Murphy. As a result, no real pressure there either. Brian Gutekunst can point both up and down the depth chart or up and next to him on the depth chart for excuses too. He can say, hey, look, Mark Murphy's getting too involved. 
it's hard for me to do my job the way I want to. Hey, I got a first year head coach. I gave him a lot of good guys. He just didn't execute. And I think we can look to just the last year or so to see how that operates. He didn't face a lot of heat for some decisions he made last year. The Packers really didn't take any steps over the last year from early 2018 until the end of the season to upgrade their safety positions at all or their offensive line. But because Gutekunst had built-in excuses, oh, we're retooling some things from Ted Thompson, oh, Mike McCarthy is not doing what we need him to do, Brian Gutekunst doesn't get the, the criticism that maybe he should in some of those situations. Broadly speaking, he probably avoids criticism because he's doing a good job. But he can avoid criticism in the future and pressure in the future by you know, pointing to other people, should he so desire. I think Brian Gutekunst is probably a year away still from real scrutiny. Once we're two years into this Gutekunst thing, we'll be able to really say, okay, here's where we stand right now. But right now, he's not going to face that same level of pressure. Mike Pettin. I can see the case for saying that he should be facing a lot of pressure this year, but I just don't agree with it. In our analogy about the Packers, Packers-topia is a fictional country that is not super concerned about its national defense or like warlike postures. It's not a conquering nation, not, not super aggressive. Our fictional country might spend big on some fancy military technology, but ultimately having a military that is just okay will be fine. And I think from an organizational perspective, the Packers, as long as they have Aaron Rodgers playing like Aaron Rodgers, are fine with a defense just being pretty good. They're not shooting for like a top five defense in the NFL. They're probably shooting for something between like eight and 13. Good, but not necessarily great. Even pretty good, even like top half of the league should be good enough if Aaron Rodgers plays like we know he can. So why are these other two face people facing actual pressure this year? I think it relates to what I just said about Mike Pettin and the defense. Prime Minister Brian Gutekunst has agreed with his predecessor in Packerstopia that the priority of the sovereign state of Packerstopia is offense. Even with the defensive spending spree this spring, six of the Packers' top seven cap hits for 2019 are going to be on offense. This team is built around offense. And free agency in the draft were more or less trying to level that playing field than reshape the entire operation. Gutekunds didn't do anything to change the offensive picture this offseason other than adding a free agent guard who might not even start and could be moved to tackle long term drafting a center in the second round who's being moved to guard, and drafting a tight end in the third round that really isn't expected to play a whole much this a whole lot this year. Other than that, everything on offense is basically the same. The most significant change on the offensive side of the ball is Matt LaFleur. And I think as a result, Matt LaFleur is facing the most pressure on the Packers. Changing very little on the personnel side of your team on one side of the ball, but making big changes to coaches can only make mean that you don't think that the personnel was the problem. And I think that's what Brian Gutekunst is saying here. LaFleur, to me then, has to be under pretty intense scrutiny this season. There is no honeymoon period. He's got to be like 10, 11 wins right out of the gate. And I'm not saying there will necessarily be tremendous consequences for him if he doesn't get to that level, but it could happen. 
and it wouldn't be a first in recent Packers history. Ray Rhodes is a pretty recent example here. LaFleur is being entrusted with shepherding the Packers' most precious resource. He is taking care of Aaron Rodgers and trying to maximize his twilight years. And, to circle back to our analogy, managing that natural resource and helping it reach its full potential on what could be the biggest stage in your industry, that's exactly what you count on from somebody like your Secretary of State of Packerstopia. And that's what the Packers are counting on Matt LaFleur to do here. But Aaron Rodgers is also facing significant pressure, and we need to stop talking about him here as a like natural resource to end the analogy, because he is a person. He is a person who can control some of the things that we've talked about in terms of the value of the resource. Even with all the nice things he said about Mike McCarthy this spring, Aaron Rodgers probably could have done more last season to take some of the heat off his close friend and head coach. And if Aaron Rodgers stops being all that he's supposed to be on like a permanent basis, one that's not affected by injury, there are going to be big problems for the Packers because they are saddled with a pretty good-sized contract. That contract isn't a problem if Aaron Rodgers is playing well. But the Packers need him to be maximum Aaron Rodgers for that contract to make any kind of sense at all. He hasn't really been maximum Aaron Rodgers since 2016. Three of the last four seasons, in fact, he hasn't been all that he could be. Not all of that is his fault, but part of it is. And if Rodgers isn't close to being the best Rodgers he can be, there will be plenty of scrutiny and consequences. Maybe not for Rodgers individually, but there will be some far-reaching consequences. Of all the people on this list, Aaron Rodgers probably has the most effect over other people other than hiring and firing. Another poor season, maybe two poor seasons from Aaron Rodgers, could have big consequences for other people. The Packers can't get back to the playoffs this year. I don't know what happens in Green Bay. That's pretty much inconceivable. Think about what the far-reaching consequences could be, though, if Aaron Rodgers can't return to being like, what, 85% of what he was in 2014 or the back half of 2016? I don't think anybody's expecting him to be like world-destroying Aaron Rodgers of 2011, although that would be great and I would love to see it. But he needs to be, you know, within shooting distance of that. He and LaFleur are the ones with the most responsibility for making the Packers into something more than they were in 2017, 2018. And it's up to them to do it. Brian Gutekunst hasn't given them a lot of new stuff to work with. It's up to them together to elevate this team that was pretty average at best a lot of last year. Sure, Aaron Rodgers was hurt, but he still could have been better. And I think if he doesn't play better, there are going to be problems in Green Bay. For what it's worth, a lot of people disagree with me slightly. I asked on Twitter yesterday, of these four people, I left Brian Gutekunst out, who do you think is facing the most pressure in the upcoming season? Matt LaFleur, Mike Patton, Aaron Rodgers, or Mark Murphy? I explained my decision to leave Gutekunst out this way. Uh, I think for whatever reason, he seems to be under less scrutiny than the other four although that could change. But of those four, Aaron Rodgers 
ran away with the vote. He had 46% of the vote. Matt LaFleur was next with 31%. Mark Murphy was in third, a distant third with 15%. And Mike Pettin had just 8% of that vote. Most people seem to think the most pressure is on Aaron Rodgers in this coming season. It'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. So I've got for you on this episode. Thank you very much for listening. I do appreciate everybody who takes the time to do just that. If you like what you heard and want to help us keep this thing going, leave us a review and a rating on iTunes. That's the best way to support the show. Doing so will help more people find us. If you want to do some other things to support us, check out our support page at thepowersweep.com for more options there. If you want to say hi or you've got an idea for the show, reach us on social media or by emailing thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. We do appreciate everybody who takes the time to reach out. And as always, every bit of feedback or thoughts or questions you give us help us make Blue 58 and the Power Sweep better, which furthers our mission of helping everyone become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.